everybody. You might notice that today I was participating in just making a joyful noise. <laughs> That's a voice joke. You can laugh. It's okay. <laughs> so every so often I always get hit with this, like, I don't want to be, like, dramatic and say, like, paralyzing laryngitis, but, like, it's so annoying, right? And, like, I'll just get hit and all of a sudden I'll be, like, talking one day and then, like, the next minute it's, like, nothing is coming out of my mouth. I can't make sound. Um, we ran into the Binkles at the tree lighting ceremony, and I like, had literally seen you the night before, and I was totally fine, and then went to say hi, and it was just like... And that was all I could get out. Um, and I'm kind of like the kind of person, when I get sick, I will never admit that I am sick. Like Everyone asked me this morning, like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm totally fine. What are you talking about? There's like two kinds of people when you get sick. You're like the kind of person who wants to be nurtured and taken care of and like you just want someone to bring you soup and like put a like washcloth on your head and that is not me. I am like, I'm gonna go crawl in a corner and die. Do not touch me, do not come near me. I will emerge when I am ready. Um, so that's just kind of how I am. Um, and I've noticed lately that it's kind of reflective in like every aspect of my personality. Um, I'm taking these courses called Empower. It's something the Metro District runs and I get to do it with my mom. And so we go through these homework assignments and we like talk about them back and forth. And one of the questions on the assignment that we were given was, what do you like or dislike about waiting? And like my mom had like this whole answer and I was just like, you asked that question like there's something good about waiting. I'm really confused. I don't know, I don't have an answer beyond like, what do you dislike about waiting? And I was just like, the waiting. <laughs> like, that's the only answer I can give you. I hate the waiting. When, if I know that there is something amazing on the horizon, why should I just sit in the uncomfortable nature of right now while I just wait to get to something amazing? Like, no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna lace up my sneakers and go running towards the finish line and figure out what I need to do to get into the amazing state away from this uncomfortable state. There is a movie on Netflix. It is actually a Broadway play. For those of you who don't know, Broadway is my first love. Um, I actually went to Nyack as a vocal performance major, um, and the Lord had different plans for me, but I changed my major, I think the final tally is like 13 times before I settled on youth ministry. Um, but I went in vocal performance and then ended up in youth ministry, so we'll figure that out another day. But there is a show on Netflix, or a movie on Netflix, called Shrek the musical. Have you guys seen this? Did you know they turned Shrek into a musical? My childhood like exploded and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to watch this. And it does not disappoint. Like 10 out of 10 recommend, please sit down and watch this today. It's so funny. Um, the one they have on Netflix actually has Sutton Foster in it. And she is a two-time Tony Award winner, a six-time nominee. And she actually received a nominee for best lead actress in her role as Fiona in Shrek the musical. Her opening number is called, I Know It's Today, and it's hysterical. It brings us all the way through Fiona's life from the time she has been locked in the tower for, eight, for 23 days at, by the age of seven to 958 days to 8,423 days. And it's this whole comical song where she's like going through and like reading fairy tales and she's like, there's a princess in a tower. Oh my gosh, that's just like me. And it's just really funny. And then all of a sudden she's like, oh, wait, wait, there's like, tor like horror and tension and fighting and battles and uh, I'm just gonna rip this out because I don't wanna do it. And I'm like, that I understand. 
And then they go into the next part, and it's 958 days, and she's talking about how she's been waiting and waiting and waiting, and the waiting, the waiting, the waiting, and it's Sutton Foster is hysterical. Um, and she gets to this point where she starts like ripping the book apart, and she's like, now I'm a vandal. Will he still love me? I don't know. And she starts to tell us that she's been in this tower now for 8,423 days. That's 23 years, friends. That's a long time to wait for a prince to come to the tower and rescue you. And I started to think about it. I was like, there is no way I would have sat in a tower for 23 years. Absolutely not. By that point, I would have taken matters into my own hands and been like, you know what? I don't need a prince. I am a strong, confident, independent woman, and I don't need a man to come break me out of this tower. We will figure this out. Something would have happened. And I probably would have hit a point before I started to like leave the tower where I was just like, what is a prince? I've only read about princes. Are they even real? Is one coming? I'm not sure that this fairy knew what she was talking about when she said that the prince will break the spell. Uh-uh, there has to be another way. This promise, this whatever, this spell, nope, not gonna fly. Let's figure out a different solution. And I also might get to a point where I start to say, you know what? There is a dragon at the base of this tower and I no longer care. I will risk my life at the hands of a fire-breathing dragon just to be rid of this horrifying waiting that I have to endure. And I don't think that a lot of us are too far removed from Fiona. How many of you would sit in a tower and wait 23 years for something? You would? Oh, okay. <laughs> You wouldn't catch me dead doing it, okay? I need people, I need things, I gotta go and do stuff. I'm kind of just, I don't know, I can't really sit in the quiet for that long. But how true does that cross over into our lives? How often do we sit in the waiting and we say, you know what, I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. This probably could happen this way if I just go and do this. Or do we start to backpedal and say, ooh, is this what was supposed to happen? Did I hear wrong? Am I the one who's confused here? Maybe he didn't mean his promises are like yes and amen. Maybe he meant like maybe and sometimes. And how many times do we just give up and believe that God has good gifts, but maybe they're just not for me? And we quit. We compromise the fullness of the promise that God has given us to be satisfied with relief from the discomfort we're feeling now. See, 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, if you want to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to hang out there today. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. That verse packs a serious punch. That verse is full of hope. That verse gets used a lot. We have a song that says, all your promises are yes and amen, for you are good, good, good. We sing this song. We declare this song. We take this verse and we apply it over our lives as often as we can. This verse is powerful. This verse inspires hope. This verse is extremely uncomfortable. Because to stand before you and say all of his promises are yes and amen, it means that I have to hold tight to them when I don't see them coming to completion yet. And it's hard to exist disjointed when your reality does not match your expectations. 
It is hard to live when you know that God has amazing things for you and he has come to redeem all things and you're still walking it out to completion. It's uncomfortable and I don't like to stay there. There's a lot of what if in this verse on our end. Yeah, all his promises are yes and amen, but what if they're not for me? Yeah, he is promising this, but what if it's not in my lifetime? Yeah, he says this, but what if I don't get to decide how it happens? And we're left in discomfort. I want to tell you guys about a study that I read. It's by Terry Linhart. He is um, one of the leading evangelical youth ministry researchers, which is like a weird job, right? Um, And he got it in his mind that he wanted to study the different language patterns of youth groups across the country. Because from how people speak about things, you can tell what matters to them. So he studied their linguistics to discern their values. And he was focusing specifically on prayer and evangelism. And he found, when he completed his research, he completed uh, over 500 youth groups across the country. They all had 50 or more students. It's a great demographic, like really valid research. And he found in his study that you can break down the values of prayer and evangelism into four stages. The first stage of prayer and evangelism is that everyone feels really well-loved. And they feel accepted and they love to receive prayer. Stage one. Stage two is that in this group, um, everyone was really comfortable with the phrase, or he uses the phrase, one anothering one another. So they were comfortable ministering to someone in the group. They were comfortable praying with someone in the group, but they might not have been as comfortable receiving prayer from someone in the group. Then we have stage three, where the students spoke about prayer as though they had an expectancy for God to move that they knew that God was actively engaged in their prayers and that he was encountering them daily. He was present and he was trustworthy. And then they moved into stage four, where if you ask those students um, who they would bring, like if they brought a friend to group, who they would point to so that student could hear the good news of Jesus, they all raised their hand and said they would just have to talk to me. They went from expecting God to be present in their lives to actively asking the Lord for opportunities to bring his good news to people. So he found these four stages in his research and over 500 youth groups in America, 90% of them stopped in stage two. And there's this huge gulf that he labels the big gulf for students crossing over into stage three where they actively expected God to work. So the bridge from students being able to say, I'm comfortable praying for someone who I know loves the Lord to I expect that the Lord is actively engaging in my prayers and answering them, there's this big gulf. And the thing that bridged students from stage two to stage three was one feature. And it was the active pattern of prayer in the lives of the adults who led the students. We have to pray with the expectancy that God is active, engaged, and present in our lives, or we have nothing to pass on. So many things in this walk that we're doing are better caught than taught. 
Because we can stand here and we can say all your promises are yes and amen, but if you aren't walking in that, it doesn't get passed on. And I'm not just talking about children. I'm not just talking about teenagers. I'm talking about people who are new to the faith. What are they here to catch if there's nothing being thrown? We reduce our prayers to places that we find comfortable or safe. And it's limiting the fullness of the kingdom. It's a bold prayer to walk out and say, all of your promises are yes and amen, Lord, and you've given me this list of promises in your word. So whether I see it in my timeline or not, they are still true. The validity of your word is not dependent on my experience, and I know that by boldly proclaiming it, I will experience the validity of your word. It's a bold step. So a lot of times it's easier to say, and reduce the, plat- or reduce the pain that we're experiencing down into something comfortable. And we start to pray over circumstances and things instead of declaring his promises. Because circumstances and things, guess what? Those are the stuff that we control. So it's easier, it's comfortable. We can say, okay, Lord, now do this, and Lord, now do this. But that makes the Lord a genie and not the sovereign creator of the universe. In that relationship, who's on the throne there? If the desire of our heart is to be comfortable, we're in danger of becoming complacent in our faith. I have lots of reasons why we should declare the promises of God as true in our prayer life, okay? The first one is that when we declare the promises of God in prayer, we are reminded of the nature and characteristics of God. Rob Reamer wrote a book called Pathways to the King. I think it's like one out of like six books he's written now. Um, It's a fantastic read. If you have the opportunity, it's like seven bucks on Kindle. Go for it. And he says, when you know the word of God and you know these promises, you can lay hold of them quickly in your time of need. They can enable you to participate in the divine nature. These promises are truths from God and God never lies. So when you claim them, you participate in God's nature and you live from God's reality because you take God at his word. We take God at his word. That one sentence unpacks so much response from us. It requires surrender. It requires trust. It requires risk and coming out of security. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis when he writes of Aslan, is he safe? No, but he is always good. In 2 Corinthians, Tim gave us a uh, great recap of like, the culture and context last week. Um, so if you weren't with us, I'm just gonna briefly share it again. Um, 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing another letter to the Corinthian people. So we have the first letter, and then we have Paul's response, which is 1 Corinthians. And then we have another letter, and now we have Paul's response, which is 2 Corinthians. And then depending on like your issues of academia, there might be a third letter combined into 2 Corinthians. But that's not for today. When we look at this letter, we understand that there is some kind of incredibly painful circumstance that Paul has had to walk through. And the people of Corinth are now calling him out on a lot. Like, you speak so boldly in your letters, but then when you're here, you're a terrible speaker. Like, okay, first of all, rude. Um, Second of all, like, whoa, let's slow your roll, okay? When I'm writing a letter, I gotta be clear. 
Um, but so when he gets into this, he starts his letter to the people of Corinth by saying, um, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. So he starts to preface this uh, circumstance that he walked through by identifying that God is a God of compassion and God is a God of comfort. And he goes down through a whole bunch of stuff when we get down to verse 5, where he says, Not verse 5. Sorry, I jumped ahead in my notes. Uh, we get down to a point where God, or Paul attributes his deliverance from this terrible circumstance simply to the fact that God is a deliverer. Of course I was delivered. He is a deliverer. It is the very nature and characteristic of who he is. The second thing that he attributes um, his deliverance to when he's declaring this promise in prayer, he says, when we, um, he says, to the prayers of many. So the first reason he was del experienced deliverance is because God is a deliverer. What else would he do? The second thing we experience is that there were many people praying into this promise, praying into this characteristic and attribute of God to declare that God is a deliverer, the prayers of many. And when we declare the promises of God in prayer, we are invited to pray with expectancy for him to move. And there were many people surrounding Paul in prayer expecting the Lord to move. See, when we pray with expectancy for the Lord to move, it's very important that we remember that it's not just this like name it and claim it mentality where we're like, oh, well, you know, I am healed. And you're like, no, you still have the flu, go home, right? We are not actively encountering God saying, these are my lists of demands, these are my lists of requests. I would like for you to meet them, please, and thank you by Monday at noon. Put it on my desk. That is not the kind of relationship that we have with him. The CAMA, the Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, the denomination that our church is part of, has this phrase that we use whenever we talk about the power of the Spirit. And it's, the phrase is, expectation without agenda. What this means is that when we're praying into the promises of God, we expect him to actively move and fulfill his promises because God doesn't lie and all of his words are true. So we can expect that when he has promised something, it will come to pass. Without agenda means that we are not prescribing the steps of the Lord and how he gets there. Without agenda means that we are not dictating a timeline in which the Lord has to move, otherwise we are removing our favor from his presence. We do not have a conditional relationship with the Lord. He has promised to unconditionally love us. He is faithful. The question of faithfulness has never been on him. It's always been on us. So then, what do we pray? If we're praying with the expectation for God to move, um, what we're doing is we're describing his heart as a promise keeper. So I want you to actively pull out a piece of paper or a phone that you can type a note in. And I'm giving you less than two minutes to write down some words that describe who God is to you. Go.
So who is God to you in your life? What has he done for you? This is not a rhetorical question. Please respond. Who is God to you? Shout some words out. Father. Father. Comforter. Comforter. Provider. Provider. A God who hears. Creator. Daddy. Constantly pursuing me. Keep them coming. Listen, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So if we're not sharing what God's doing in our lives, joy, He is joy. Love, He is love. Faithful, faithful, faithful. Healer, friend. Solace. <laughs> I like these words. We're getting fancy now. <laughs> these characteristics that you are all naming are true of his character and his nature, which means they are promises to you. And he can only be faithful to his promises. It's just who he is. He can't help himself. What I want you to take a moment and identify is, is there anything on your list where you can say, God is a healer, and you know it and you believe it to be true, but are you unable to shift it into, God has promised me healing? There is breakthrough when you shift from God is to God has promised. These are what you pray. These are great examples, and scripture is full of countless examples of the promises God has given us. I've given you guys a few that have been really pertinent in my life. I think there's eight up there. The slide, you know, I like was stretching the margins, shrinking the font size. But here's eight that God has given me, that God has given you. Here are eight that are found in scripture. And in each of these promises, they are true. And in every promise, there is an expanse of time between the promise and the delivery. All of God's promises are yes and amen, so he does not leave us in the waiting. But the waiting is hard. The waiting is so stinking hard. One of the promises that's up there says, God has promised to love me always. And I want to take a minute and just tell you guys the story of that in my life. Um, the year was 2014. Um, and I was just sitting at my kitchen table and I was drinking a cup of coffee. And it was quiet and it was still, Logan was still sleeping. This was when I... Used to got to, I used to get to spend my days with Logie Bear. And I was sitting there just like, not even praying, not even in devotions, just in the silence. And I heard the voice of the Lord whisper in my ear, hey, there has never been a day when you have been outside of my love. 
And I was like, oh, and I snuggled in with my coffee. I was like, that was so nice. Like, wow, thank you, Jesus. That was great, you know? And so I, and he was like, no, write it down. I don't want you to forget. Write it down. And I then walked through one of the hardest seasons of my life. Where I had been given pictures of things that weren't coming to pass. And it was just experiencing loss after loss after loss. To the point where I was laying on the floor of my bedroom. And I just couldn't get up the will to go to work. I didn't want to go to volleyball practice. I would muster up enough strength to go to coach. And I would come back home and I would lay in my closet and just cry. And I walked through that season and just questioned everything about myself, where I was like, I can't even do anything right. And when I finally got through the season and I started to see all of the things that God had given me pictures of coming to pass, I was reminded time and time again, he whispered in my ear, hey, there's never been a day when you have been outside of my love. And as I was making choices and decisions, he was like, so stop trying to edge me out. You can't push me away. These promises are not just words in a book that we read. They are living, breathing promises that he whispers in your ear, that he sends to you in notes from friends, that he paves ways in the universe to speak into your heart. So what do we do in the waiting of these promises? There's two things I know to be true when we're waiting. Because from promise to delivery, he is present. Second Corinthians chapter one tells us so much about the comfort of God. It describes him as, as God being the most compassionate. And I can't even say thing or being or entity or anything like that. He's just the most compassionate. He is the author of the universe and he created compassion and he is the God of compassion. Therefore, he is the most compassionate. He's called the father of comfort, which means that he designed comfort, which means that everything you're looking for when you're craving to be comforted, he got it right and he knows exactly what you need. Our comfort is inherently tied to his presence. 2 Corinthians 1 tells us that no trouble we encounter is outside of his capability to bring us comfort. We know that his comfort is constant, it's accessible, and it is dependable. But it's important to identify the difference between being comforted and being comfortable. Because when we're comforted, we are receiving his external peace through his presence. Scripture tells us about his peace all the time. It tells us how he gives us peace that surpasses understanding, that he gives us peace not as the world gives, but as a good father. So if the peace is something external that we receive, nothing in our circumstances or our things around us have to be peaceful because we have his peaceful presence. He is the peace. It is not our circumstances. The peace he brings is external. And it's from this place of peace that we're often driven to share this peace. And Paul starts to talk about this before he talks about declaring the promises of God to be true, yes and amen in our prayer. 
in 2 Corinthians 1.5, that's where it is. He describes God's comfort as being abounding, just as our sufferings in this world are abundant. And I want you to take careful notice of the different tenses of those words. Because the sufferings of this world are abundant, implicating a set large amount, past tense, complete, finite, finished, right? But his comfort is abounding, action verb, right, Danielle? Okay, action verb. Meaning that it's constantly growing and evolving to meet us within our needs and capacities. Being comfortable is dependent on circumstances and things of this world. And we know that those are just promised to fade away. The second thing we know in the waiting is that from promise to delivery, he is trustworthy. 2 Corinthians 1.20, we're going to finish it all the way to 22 now. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And just in case we missed it, Paul used three different ways to assure us that God is trustworthy. The first way that he says is that we are anointed, and it's his anointing. It is God's anointing. So we are people empowered with the spirit to endure. It's throwing back to the times where they consecrated priests to, be, to walk fully in the promise that God had spoken over their life. It is this ancient practice of deep respect that seals you into the ownership of a promise that's been given over you. He then gives you a seal, which is the signs of a, a sign of a, the king's word. That's how they used to seal all the decrees. And it's like they were saying, everything in this document, true, good, verified by me. You can take it to the bank. I'll stand behind this. And the third way he proves that he is trustworthy is he uses the word deposit with his spirit. Have you ever had to leave your license somewhere to like ensure that you're going to return for something? That's like super high risk. God left you with his spirit, with part of himself. That's a deposit you can take to the bank. Many of you are homeowners. When you put that 20% deposit down, <laughs> it's a huge investment. And he stands behind it. He's guaranteeing the investment that he has made within you. And you can trust him. So now this requires a response from us. What must we do? If we know that we are to pray the promises of God, and we know that there is going to be time passing between promise and delivery, and we're going to be stuck in the waiting for a little bit, here is what we need to do. Super simple. We have to stand firm. I had a teacher inform us that before, or teach us too, before we went into a public speaking encounter, to just take on the Superman pose and stand firm. Because it inspires this confidence within you that wells up and you just can't, like you can't be broken, like you know you're walking out with an A when you stand like Superman for at least 30 seconds before a presentation. But standing firm comes with three different things that we get to do. And guess what? You're only responsible for like half of one of them. God tells us that when you stand firm in me, you are just relying and abiding in my presence. When we look back at 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 20 through 22, you gotta notice that it says the promises that God has made, not you. And it is God who makes you stand firm, not you. 
So not only do you have to verify the promise, you don't have to verify the promise, you don't have to come up with the courage to stand firm in the promise that he has given you. He's taken all of the hard work on himself. How good is he? And just in case we missed it, we actually see the Trinity in this passage. It talks about God has made, God has done. We see that the, prom- the promises are yes in Christ, and we see that we are anointed in Christ. And then we see that we have the deposit of the Spirit, God, Christ, Spirit, three in one. He's giving everything he has to walk this life through with you. You get to rely and abide in him. All of, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and the amen is spoken by us through him. We just have to speak boldly. We have to pray bold prayers. We have to say, God, you have given me your word, and I trust that it is true. I am not placing my plan or agenda over it, but I expect you to move, and I'm ready and waiting. See, because the Bible, it's this entire book where God has been telling us exactly what he is going to do from start to finish. When it came down to Abraham, he told him exactly what he was going to do, and then it happened. When it comes to his own son, he told the prophets for hundreds of years beforehand, look at what I am going to do. Pave a way in the wilderness. Make known the ways of the Lord. Here I'm coming. Here I am. You will call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And we got there, and he did it. He tells us what he's going to do before it's done. We get to speak it boldly. And the third thing we get to do is we get to pray these promises without ceasing. Because if it's going to take some time between promise and delivery, you don't want to quit and you don't want to lose hope. And it's funny because the word that we're told to say is not a huge prayer, it's just amen. So let's break down that word. Amen means, so let this be true. Let this. It's a present action. Be true. It's a hope for future circumstances. Your present action for your future circumstances is to actively engage in praying the promises of God as true in your life before you even see it come to completion. Because here's what you need to understand. Prayer is where we prepare our hearts for what God is going to do. C.S. Lewis once said, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because the need flows out of me, waking or sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. Prayer is where God brings our hearts into alignment with where he is going and what he is doing. He breaks off things that are not of him and he gives you new life every time you meet with him and encounter him. When we declare the promises of God, we're doing it so that we are ready for where he is going. We declare the promises of God so that we see what he is about to do and we're able to participate in it. We declare the promises of God so that when he has done it, all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise can only go to him. When we pray the promises of God, we get to participate in his character and nature. We get to tell the world how good Jesus is and that he reigns, that he is present, that he is sovereign, that he is everything their soul is actively looking for, and it is right here. All you have to do is give him your yes. All of his promises are yes and amen. 
So let this be true. Look back to your list. Where do you need to see the Lord actively moving? What do you need to surrender so that you can receive the fulfillment of his promises? I don't want you as my church family to be half living in the kingdom. I want to come next to you. I want to pray with you. I want to hear about what the Lord is doing in your life so that we can lay this down together and pray with expectancy for him to move in this place at this time with us here. Because when he speaks, everything is subject to his authority. He is sovereign over all. He is present in all. And he is actively working for our good. So don't lose hope. Claim his promises. Share them with your friends, your neighbors, your people sitting across the pew. We talked about the power of the praying community. We talked about an attitude of gratitude. We've talked about the weapons of our warfare. And we're standing in the presence of being able to declare his promises as yes. And so we're going to speak it as amen. So today I want to read a prayer from Tice King's Praying the Word for Your Church. And she's called it Proclaiming the Greatness of Our God. Let's pray. Father, your word says that I will come and proclaim your mighty acts and I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. So how blessed are we, Father, that you are our God, that because of Jesus we belong to you. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture, the flock under your care. So God, thank you for calling us to you. Today, Father, I agree with your word and I confess that it is you who has taught us and led us. It is your faithful love that has sustained us. So now, Lord, open our mouths and release our lips that we might become a church community that declares your power and your might to the next generation. For you have done great things and there is none like you. May our joyful proclamation continually be that you are great and worthy of our praise. So through us, Lord, receive the glory that is due your name. May we recount the stories of the mighty things that you have done, telling and proclaiming the miraculous ways that you have intervened and provided for us. May stones of remembrance be shared among our faith community, testimonies and of your faithfulness for more times than we can recount. For you have parted the waters before us and made a way where there was none. So this day, Father, may we be the church community <laughs> called the river. Can we please be remember, or can we please remember and proclaim your mighty power expressed in our lives? May the stories of our hearts be dusted off and spoken of once again for you, O oh God, have provided in famine. For you, O oh God, have delivered us from death. For you, O oh God, have set the captives free, and you have restored whatever has been stolen. So please increase our boldness. Increase our boldness in proclaiming your greatness, Father, so that our children and our youth and those who are new to knowing you will be encouraged to follow you wholeheartedly. Will they become proclaimers of your greatness and your goodness as well? 
God, release joyful proclamation over my brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus this day so that we might give you the glory due to your name. May the overflow of our hearts be heard again and again through stories of your greatness, goodness, provision, and saving power in our lives. For truly, you have done amazing things, Lord, and you are worthy of all of our praise. To you alone be all the glory. Hallelujah and amen. Thank you.